Welcome to the IoT Security Podcast, powered by Phosphorus Cybersecurity, your source for securing the extended Internet of Things. Join the conversation with your hosts, Brian Contos and John Vecchi. Well, hello, everybody. You're listening to the IoT Security Podcast live on Phosphorus Radio. I'm John Vecchi. And I'm Brian Contos, and we've got a really special guest today joining us. Welcome to the show, Mark Weatherford. Hello, Brian and John. I'm happy to be here with you guys today. Welcome. We're thrilled to have you. I've been looking forward to this interview for a while because you've got one of the greatest backgrounds, I think, in cyber. Uh, We were talking before the show how somehow you've crammed like three or four careers into one, but uh, you've done so much. Maybe you could share with our audience members kind of your journey and and what you've done and, and how you've gotten into cyber and all that kind of good stuff. Oh my gosh, you give me the opportunity to go over my resume here. Well, (laughs) um, you know, I've told this story a lot of times, you know, I joined the Navy and I I thought I was going to be a CB and drive tractors and the Navy had ideas, different ideas for me. And they sent me through this program, um, uh, electronics and computers and, and kind of set the course of my career. And then I actually went to grad school in, uh, in the early nineties. And when I came time to write my thesis, I literally, somebody said, hey, what about this information assurance, information security stuff? So I wrote my thesis in the early 90s on uh, information security. And as you might imagine, there wasn't too many people talking about information (laughs) security back in the 90s. So that kind of set my career. And, uh, you know, I, I, I got out of the Navy and I've been in and out of the public sector and the private sector a couple of times. I worked uh, in state government. I was the, the CISO for the state of Colorado and in the Schwarzenegger administration in California. Um, I was worked in the Obama administration as the deputy undersecretary for cybersecurity. I was a chief security officer at the North American Electric Reliability Corporation, where you know we worked with all electric utilities in North America. And then, you know, I've done a few startups and, uh, and yeah, so I've been in this stu- in this business for like, another, like my whole life. Yeah. Well, I, I wow. always wondered, Mark, you know, because not, not very many people have done state and, and federal like you have. Did you, did you notice a big difference? I guess go, you know, California, obviously a, a the, the biggest state, but work, working as the CISO for California, juxtaposed to working for the federal government, were there were there big difference in process and policy or approach, or was it pretty much the same, but just at a different scale? Yeah, I think, good question. It, it really is just a scaling issue. I mean, so first off, you know, like Colorado, we had 24 state agencies. California, we had over 160 different agencies, boards, councils, commissions, departments. And then, uh, you know, I get to the to DHS and all of a sudden I have, you know, the scope was unbelievable. I mean, I, I kind of had two two jobs. I, one of them was working with all of the civilian federal agencies. That basically means everybody outside of DOD and the intelligence community. But probably the bigger and more important in my mind job was working with all of the critical infrastructures in the nation. And um mm-hmm. And it was an interesting time to, you know, to be to be doing that in the uh, 2011, 12, 13 timeframe. Wow. And, you know, what, what's interesting, Mark, is you've, you've got both sides, right? You've you've spent a lot of time on the state federal government side, but you've also been in the industry side. 
tell us a little bit about the, the difference between those two. I mean, did did one kind of help with the other? Were they were they complementary in many many ways? And in what ways were they really really different? You know. It's funny, and I haven't ever thought of this. This thought just now occurred to me, John. But I said, I think the one thing going back into private sector after being and working in, you know, with the White House and, you know, at the top levels of, I don't get intimidated by CEOs anymore. I mean, when you're sitting (laughs) in a room with the president and the cabinet having a meeting, that's pretty damn intimidating. But, you Mm -hmm. know, then going back and sitting with a board and a CEO, eh. It's not so intimidating anymore. <laughs> well, well. plus you got to sit in the office with Arnold Schwarzenegger, did you not? Yeah. During really. that time frame. Well, <laughs> you know, I, I, so while I, I, you know, I worked for Schwarzenegger several le- levels down, I, I probably saw him maybe a half dozen times in, mm-hmm. in the two years. You know, he was still a kind of a celebrity governor. And I mean, mm-hmm, I love yeah. the guy. I think I think the world of him. I, I think he's an amazing person and an amazing life story. But yeah, I didn't get to spend as much time with him. I mean, the, the one thing I wanted to do, you know, he had in the interior of the Capitol in, in Sacramento, there's, it's just a big, like a, a garden area. And he had a tent set up out there so he could go out and smoke cigars. Mm-hmm. And uh-huh. my one life goal was to smoke a cigar with Schwarzenegger, but it never <laughs> that happened. That would have been the best. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you know, Mark, one of the things that uh, I, I think is really interesting about your background as well is the time you spent with NERC. And of course, working working in that side of critical infrastructure obviously gave you perspectives into things that not all of us are aware of. Uh, but how have you seen the the cybersecurity landscape change specifically as it's related to that sort of OT SCADA critical infrastructure side of the house. You know, you you've you've been exposed to this now for decades. Is it is it getting better? Is it getting worse? Are are we actually making improvements? What's the what's kind of the state of the state there? Man, great great question. So, just for perspective, I was in my job for 7 days at NERC when Stuxnet happened. Oh jeez, I didn't wow. I didn't even know that. Stuxnet consumed my life for the next year. Um, wow. But I think, you know, from a, from a, is it getting better? Is it getting worse? I think some things are getting better. There's certainly more awareness now um, of it. And, you know, one of the biggest challenges that I had when I was there, I mean, I would go to some of these big OT vendors and I'd say, hey, you guys, you've got to up your game. You've got to be, you've got to be building more security into your technologies. And almost 100% of the time, they would say, hey, customers aren't willing to pay for it, so we're not going to do it. So I think that has changed. Now, customers are beginning to get more demanding about it, um, about, you know, wanting to know and making sure that, you know, that the vendors have actually considered security, that they have actually built certain controls into their security. You know, I think that the whole SBOM initiative is really having a huge impact on the industrial control sector mm-hmm. of, of vendors because now vendors want to know where did this, who wrote this code and where did it come from? Um, so we're getting a, I, there's a lot more activity, a lot more involvement there um, than we've ever seen before. Um, but I think from a, from a trend perspective, you know, and I, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but Momentum Cyber is a, uh, is a venture of EC firm in, in the Bay Area. 
And they put out this, uh, they call it their Momentum Cyber Graphic, I think every quarter or so. And this graphic, it, it started out like five years ago. It was just, it was, I don't know, probably 10 different categories of security products and tools. And today there's probably 20 or 30 different categories. And each one of these categories, there's dozens and dozens of different tools. And it's so complicated. It's so the aggregation of all these technologies, it makes it difficult for a CISO or, or anybody, any security professional today to actually be able to evaluate all the op, all the potential technologies that are out there. And I don't think that's a good thing, by the way. I mean, I, I'm all for diversity of security and diversity of security tools, but there's just so much out there that it's impossible to I say it today, you know, 20 years ago, I think I could could reasonably call myself a cybersecurity expert. Today, I don't even I don't even go down that road because it's just there's so much I, I don't I don't even know all the technologies that are out there today. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. It's in and you know, Mark, we talk about these kind of connected devices, right? These smart devices. We kind of refer to them as XIOT simply because there are so many and they're very diverse, yeah. right? And, and when we talk about XIOT, it's it's all the enterprise IoT. It's all the, the network devices that people forget about, switches and load balancers and wireless routers and all that. And of course, it's all the OT kind of ICS, PLC kind of SCADA, SCADA stuff, right? Um, but specifically, as you as you talked about kind of the 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 OT side, the utilities, the critical infrastructure, right? Um, let's talk a little bit about the difficulty of that, like because they're in the OT bucket, and in many cases, it means they haven't historically been in the IT bucket, right? What we've seen is they've somehow avoided the typical scrutiny of cybersecurity, right? But you know, like a PLC is an is an ICS, is an OT, it's an XIOT. And, you know, you mentioned Stuxnet. I mean, oftentimes we kind of bury our head in the sands and say, well, we'll just put them on an isolated network and and we're good. Well, Stuxnet was kind of an isolated network. Is You know, can you talk a little bit about the, the challenges with the OT side and, and even maybe a little bit about why did you spend so much time on Stuxnet? Was it the fact that that did get attacked and we kind of thought that's not going to get attacked? I mean, can you talk a little bit about that and some of the challenges there? Yeah, I mean, if you think about Stuxnet, oh, certainly, you know, it was a very complex attack. I mean, mm-hmm. for sure, the most complex of all. But if you think about how they actually did it, they were on a air gap network. You know, they compromised a, a person mm-hmm. to to get the malware installed in there. So, and, and I think, you know, we have, this is, again, this is kind of one of the core tenets of of security that we've been, we've talked about and we're worried about for years is the insider threat. Um, mm-hmm. And it, it doesn't have to be malicious. And that's what I always tell people. It's like, don't think you're going to see a, a guy wearing a black hat walking down the halls. Oftentimes, it's just, it's it's a naive or someone who isn't paying attention. And they're mm-hmm. the ones, they're the vector into your organization. And I think going back to this, the XIOT, you know, we're really bad about creating terms in, in the security community. You know, we created IoT, and I, I can remember giving talks 10 years ago saying, hey, we have an opportunity here to actually get it right. Let's start working on embedding security technologies into IoT, into the frameworks of IoT that are coming out. Mm-hmm. Of course, we didn't do that. Um, uh, but, but, you know, 
XIOT is it's a it's difficult because it's a term that includes, as you said, ITOT and even physical devices connected mm-hmm. to the internet. So yep. you know, Wendy Nather, she's at, at Cisco now. She was at Duo with Duo when they acquired her. But Wendy said a couple of years ago, she the greatest quote I've ever heard, and I use it all the time. It's like she said that the perimeter is anywhere you make an access control decision. I mean, oh my gosh, you know, we talk about the perimeter going away and it's exactly for that reason. Anywhere you make an access control decision today, that is your perimeter. So, Mm -hmm. you know, this digital transformation that's occurring across the globe and every company has made these network boundaries almost impossible to define. And when, and when you, we think about COVID, what, what has COVID done to us? I mean, we went from, from organizations, including the government, by the way, and including some very sensitive places in the government, we went from working in an office one day to working from home the next day. Mm-hmm. So we created this environment um, where people are accessing data and systems from places we never even dreamed of three years ago. So it's a complicated issue. I mean, and I think we're getting better at it. Um, and some of those, you know, technologies that I talk about that are that are exploding are helping us to understand and how to get better at at, at some of these things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think you hit the nail on the head in terms of we had the opportunity to really do this right based on lessons learned from IT security, hard lesson learned. And we kind of missed the boat. And John and I are always talking about some of the stats around this. You know, there, there's about 50 billion depending on whose stats you look at, plus or minus, there's a lot of XIOT devices, far more than there are servers in the cloud, far more than there are uh, traditional endpoints, which are decreasing every quarter actually now, traditional uh, laptops and workstations, yeah. things with keyboards. Uh, so we know the attack surface is massive and growing, touches every vertical throughout the enterprise or personal use or home or healthcare, uh, whatever, it's everywhere. But when you start looking into the security of it, half the time, 50% of the time, the de- the passwords on these devices are just default passwords that you can do a quick Google query. Yeah, or mm-hmm. it's hard-coded. Um, and they're so easy to find. And when you tell somebody, hey, you know, you probably have about three to five devices per employee in your company. So if I've got 10,000 people, I've got 50,000 devices. 25,000 of those devices have some kind of hard-coded or default password. Most of them are just Linux servers. It's not some obscure system. On the OT side, it's real-time operating systems like VxWorks. On the network side, it's like BSD. But it's usually a Linux derivative. It's it's Ubuntu or it's BusyBox or something like that. They're loaded with vulnerabilities. And the reason they're loaded with vulnerabilities, two reasons. One, they never upgrade the firmware. A lot of the firmware is end of life or it's just old. And on the other side of it, there's a lot of sort of shared libraries and, and and white labeling that's done. So the vulnerability on a voice over IP phone exists on a printer, exists on audio video equipment, exists on a security camera. It's just all over the place. So we know this and we know the, the bad guys know this, nation state actors, cyber criminals. Looking into your crystal ball, and I know cybersecurity predictions are, are worth what you're paying for them, but looking into your crystal ball, do you think this is going to be the new new as it relates to, um, you know, either monetized attacks by cyber criminals or 
truly destructive attacks or attacks uh, attacks focused on spying and things like that from nation states is is XIOT like the the new new in terms of how they're getting in juxtaposed to banging their head against all the IT security controls that are already out there. Yeah, I I, I do. Uh, unfortunately, you know, and I I really I always mock people who make predictions because in this business, you know, I can say, hey. You know, attacks are going to go up next year, and guess what? I'm going to be a hundred percent right. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, but but yeah, I I agree. I I think I do think again. I'm going to go back to this to this technology complexity. Our environments are getting more complex. We're adding, and you know, I can remember two or three years ago we talked about artificial intelligence was the next wave, and I actually think artificial intelligence is the next wave. I think AI is going to create both value and challenges for us. Um, um, I, I do think in the short term, I think that it's going to get worse. In the longer term, I think it's going to get better. In the longer term, I have an, a vision where my job goes away. You know, you don't need a CISO anymore because our technology is going to be self-healing. It's going to be self-detecting, self-monitoring. Um, I, I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. But, but. You know, I think that it it is it is going to get worse before it gets better. But but we have there's some amazing technologies out there right now. They're just mind blowing. Um, they're so good. Um, but weeding through the wheat from the chaff to find the good stuff is 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 can be pretty damn hard. Yeah, and I, only only because we I, we can't resist. We we often talk, Mark, about. The fact that looking at XIOT security is kind of like going back to the '90s in IT security. You wrote your thesis on that, so do you see the parallels with you know? You think about in the '90s when we were trying to deal with kind of even endpoint security, right? We were trying to figure out who the heck is using a password and how to how to rotate those and get anything intelligent in there. We were trying to figure out where they are and what they were and what firmware version they're on and all these things, right? And you kind of think back to, you look look at where we are with XIOT and it, it seems, wow, we've just been transported back to the 90s. Do you see that similarity when you think about it? It really is. I mean, <laughs> you, you hit it on that, but I will tell you, when I first got in this business, my biggest, you're going to laugh at this, my biggest concern was website defacements. Um, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that was the daily thing. I'm like, whose website got defaced today? And, and mm -hmm. but, but yeah, no, you're, you're absolutely right. And again, I, 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 I add in the, the physical security piece of this, you know, mm. when you think of gates, guards, and guns, um, that, that piece, I mean, it's still there. It's, you know, it's back to the future. Um, we've just automated it and we've digitized it and we've, you know, we have add, added layers of technology on top of old technology, which is, mm -hmm. by the way, what we've done with OT in many cases, too. So, so yeah, it is, you know, it, it, and somebody wrote a paper. I think, I think it was um, Andy Bachman wrote a paper a couple of years ago. Andy Bachman and Tim Roxy, I think, wrote a paper. They're both power, power guys, electrical guys. And they wrote a paper and said, hey, we need to – we need to have backup capabilities that that we can go to manual operations so that we can manually pull switches, that we can manually um, do things that we have automated just to keep the grid alive in the case mm -hmm. of an emergency. And 
believe it or not, a lot of companies have actually, I mean, I wouldn't say they're investing a lot of money in doing that, but they're, they're making investments that allow them to retain some of those old functionality while they're layering this new technology in. I mean, you think about it, a relay at a substation, if somebody can, can, auto, can trip that remotely, wouldn't you like to be able to go in there and grab a lever and go and go, mm-hmm. okay, this, this relay is back, back live now. So it, it's, it, it, yeah, back to the future for sure. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I'm wondering, and again, pulling maybe from your, your exposure in the federal government, I mean, th- this security has always moved fast and it's always, or generally moved faster than most policies and policymakers can, can keep up with. XIOT is that on steroids. It's just a completely amplified version of what we've already seen. And we go into some organizations and we ask them, you know, what are you doing for XIOT security? A lot of them are in the the very early stages. Again, like you and John said, back to the early '90s, where I'm just trying to discover what I got. I don't I don't even know what I have on my on my network. And I'm always like, yeah, discovery is really important, but discovery is not the thing. Discovery is the thing that gets you to the thing, and that's preventative controls. And you know, do I have good credentials? Do I have updated uh, firmware? Are my certs strong? Are my devices hardened? And all these other steps that we take. But given that the industry, you know, and, and you know, I've with, with, with phosphorus, I've been all over the world. I've been meeting with different different organizations and different verticals. So this isn't specific to any vertical or any geography. A lot of folks are still in that very very early. Well, I'm just trying to find out what I've got stage. If they're there, what hope do we have for the the policymakers to to help the you know make sure that these vendors that are building these XIoT devices are embedding security, are making sure that they're more secure in terms of following best practices and things of this nature. Don't have these default embedded passwords worked into the code. Uh, is is the federal government going to be able to keep up with this in any way, shape, or form? Or are, are we doing better than we used to? Or, or maybe I'm just being too cynical thinking that, that their ability to keep up with the, the rate of this space is, is just not going to happen. Well, you know, I can't even believe I'm going to say this. But, you know, I can remember laughing at the policy people thinking they don't really understand security. You know, I'm down here skimming my knuckles. You know, I'm in the trenches every day doing security stuff. But I almost think that that I, I've changed. I, and I was when I was at DHS, it's actually this this metamorphosis of my brain began because I I started seeing actually policy can drive technology. Now I am not a, a huge fan of regulation, but I think we're at a point in and and in our society now where where technology can actually impact. The safety and security of citizens can impact, mm-hmm. you know, our our economic stature in the world. So I think there's a place now, and, and and it's been proven over and over again that that security companies are not going to invest money just because it's the right thing to do. There has to be some kind of enforcing factor, some kind of incentive to get them to do it. So I think that policy is policy almost needs to lead technology. Now that's that can't happen because you know you have to have the technology that says, oh wait, we need policy to drive this. But I think we're going to get, I don't know if you've seen it, but you know, the National Cybersecurity Director 
the Office of the National Cybersecurity Director is has been working on this uh, new national cybersecurity policy. It hasn't been released yet, but there's been some leaks of of it um, that have been out. And what I've seen is there's a a huge focus on more regulation for critical infrastructures. Now, you know, five years ago, I would have said, you know, that's overreached by the government. But today, we cannot ignore that. We need, we need, instead of this, I call it the whack-a-mole, the legislative whack-a-mole. You know, you have a, a colonial pipeline event, and some legislature says, we need to regulate the pipelines. And then you have an FAA, you know, event like last week, and then a legislator says, we need to regulate the FBI or the FAA. Um, and, you know, this is the entirely wrong way of doing this because you're going out and you're cherry picking different different slices of critical infrastructure. Not even, you know, the, the, the NOTAMs is just one little bitty piece of, of the aviation community. But now we have, you know, a, a legislator wants to regulate this. So mm-hmm. my my position today is that we need to take a more of a holistic approach to critical infrastructure. You know, we've said for a long time, Ryan, you know this, in the, the NERC SIP critical infrastructure protection, SIP standards, we were the, the electricity industry, even today, is the only uh, critical infrastructure sector in the nation that has mandatory and enforceable standards for cybersecurity. Well, the, the nuclear power industry also, but 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 why don't we have this for some of the other critical infrastructure sectors that our society depends on? So I think we need that, and that's where this, what at least you know, the leaked versions of what I'm seeing of the national cybersecurity strategy is going to call for more of that kind of holistic regulation instead of the whack-a-mole approach to regulation. Yeah. yeah. I was going to say, Mark, it's interesting. And, and I wonder, you, you almost think, you know, recently the FCC actually banned, they moved from just, you know, a requirement that this, a lot of this equipment not deployed on, say, government networks, but they, they recently leveraged, you know, the Secure Equipment Act and actually banned devices uh, made in by certain Chinese manufacturers because they pose a threat to national security and to the persons yeah. of the United States, which was a, a pretty big step from an FCC perspective. I almost wonder, based on what you said, which is very interesting, that you see them leveraging that even up to a level of the FCC, even something that touches the public. And um, one of the things uh, w- w- we actually did from a phosphorus perspective is is to be able to identify these devices for organizations, specifically after that ban, a lot of organizations said, geez, I mean, I don't even know if the, how many of these things I have. And we, you know, the, they wanted to actually find them and, and kind of do a soft brick to put them out of, out of commission. Right. But, but back to the, to the point, do you see kind of that move from an FCC almost, you know, really validating the point you made from a critical infrastructure perspective, right? Actually moving to things like cameras, which you wouldn't think it's a cyber-physical system, but kind of is in some ways, right? Well, absolutely. We're going to see more of this, I think. And, Mm -hmm. you know, cameras are one of those things that Brian was talking about a minute ago. Half of them, you know, have default passwords embedded in them. Half of them have, or the other half of them have hard-coded passwords in them. I mean, who (laughs) would have ever, and, and, and by the way, 
you know, this is some of these IoT devices are things that they never, there's no life cycle on them. There's no end mm. of life of them. You know, you put a camera on the wall of, on the outside of a building and you expect it to be there for 20 years. Mm-hmm. So, so, you know, so not only is security not embedded in them, but whatever vulnerabilities exist with them are going to be there forever. Yeah, we're going to see, I mean, we're, you know, it's going to be called a lot of things. It's going to be called government overreach. It's going to be called big brother. It's going to be called a lot of things, but you know what? I think we're, again, we're at a point in our nation's history, or no, in the global history, where, you know, when a, when a guy with a laptop in Moldova can take down a network and turn off the lights for, you know, for a city, we need more regulation. We need mm-hmm. more, we need more oversight to say, no, we know that you haven't done this you know, on your own because it was the right thing to do. So now we're going to provide some incentives for you to do that. And by the way, I, there's a lot of ways you can incentivize good behavior. It doesn't always have to be the stick. There are some, some carrots that can incentivize mm-hmm. good behavior as well. Yeah, that's a great point. You know, the camera is what's, what's really interesting about cameras, and we'll, we'll just keep on double-clicking on this for a bit, is we've yet to go into organization that has hundreds of cameras. Every organization that we go into has thousands, if not thousands. tens of thousands, if not yes. more. And they're installed by some engineer that shows up in a van with a box and a drill. <laughs> he or she's not thinking about security development lifecycle. They're thinking about bolting into the wall and connecting the cable and getting out there. Um, you know, and John so, mentioned some so of these funny, that are yeah, Brian, yeah, just, just yeah. a funny diversion. So uh, you know, I told you, I just moved into my new house. I had the alarm guys come in. And, and so I am grilling these guys like, where did that come from? You know, what, <laughs> what kind of certifications you have? They're looking at me like, hey, we do this a thousand times a day. I'm like, not in my house, you don't. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. And now you, you take that and you multiply it by, you know, 100,000 yeah. in a business. You know, we, we've been in organizations where for the life of me, I think they have some cameras that just watch other cameras. And, uh, <laughs> you know, like John said, some of these now, they're, they're illegal to import. Right, they're illegal to sell. A couple years ago, they it was just said, "Hey, don't use these in government organizations. Don't use these with any government contractors. We know they're bad. We know if you say stop recording, they turn the green light to red, but they still record audio, they still record video, and they still stream it to some foreign location." Mm -hmm. And they're saying, "Okay, now we're going to step up." So in November of 2022, they actually pulled the trigger. I'm actually kind of proud, and they said, "Look, we're going to stop the importation of sale." Period. Well, that's that's great. That's that's in the United States. I was at a conference in Dubai where one of these cameras in particular was the primary sponsor of this conference that had 150,000 people oh on with God. a big booth. And so it's not like they're <laughs> done. It's not like they're over. It's just that they're not used on uh, U.S. soil. Um, but it was really nice, I think, to see uh, that I thought that the government stepped up in a pretty quick way and just said, that's it. We, we well, know this, I, we know this poses a significant threat and stops it. I agree though, but you know, that's cameras. Okay. What about medical devices? Yeah. What about, yeah. mm-hmm. I mean, you know, you look in some of these other sectors and we've got a lot of devices that are made, who knows where they're made or, or even if the devices are put together here in the U S where was the code developed? Um, and, and we still, you know, we still don't have a good grasp of that. I don't think. I agree. I mean, I, again, I'm, I can't even believe I'm saying this, but I think we need to have more 
oversight right now. I won't call it regulation, but we need to have more guidance right now. Yeah. Yep. No, no, that, that makes perfect sense. Any, any, like what you just said there about the medical devices and things like that. If we think about one of the first well-known attacks in XIT, it was the Mirai botnet, right? It was an opportunistic attack. Basically, some people went out and showed in, show me where all the cameras are that are also running Telnet port 23. I can access it from the internet. And it's got a default password or one of about a dozen passwords. Based on that, they amassed a very large botnet. However, what they found out was, you know what, there's a lot of other devices that are also running Telnet with the same default password. There were printers, there were voice over IP phones, there were UPS systems. And the reason was, is they were all using the same shared libraries and they had white labeling with the same code. So the same vulnerability on that camera was on that printer, was on that other device. So now instead of just a botnet of a whole bunch of cameras, they had a botnet of a whole bunch of other XIoT devices. The sad part of that story is we go into organizations today and not only do we still find devices that are vulnerable to Mirai, again, this came out, this was back in 2016 because no one's ever upgraded their firmware, but there's devices that are actually running Mirai. It still has the malware on those devices because the long as the printer is still printing or the camera is still filming or the TV is still working, no one's paying attention to everything else that's happening around it. So yeah, there, there, there definitely is a little bit of education and awareness that's it's kind of happening in XIOT like it, it did, I think, focused on the SCADA OT world over the last decade or so. It's picking up at a pretty increased rate, though, because now people can't ignore it because the bad guys aren't ignoring it and they're using this as a stepping stone. So to your point, I think regulatory mandates and, and policy and, and vendors and, and like you said about the OT stuff earlier, the vendors aren't going to make stuff more secure unless people are going to pay to have more secure devices. And if people yep. aren't asking for it, they're not going to build it. So I, I, it's almost a tail wag the dog, right? And, and maybe that's happening now. It is. I, you know, we, I mean, it has become, and again, we've been saying this for several years now, but it's become a board level issue now. Boards are, are saying, wait a minute, you told me this. How do, I want to validate this. I want, I, I want, show me some, some evidence of what you just said. I mean, you mentioned Shodan and, and I, you know, Shodan is one of those technologies that I wish didn't exist because it can be used for good and evil. You may have heard me tell this story before, Brian. I think I was at NERC, so this was like this was you know twelve years ago. Um, I was given a talk, and I took a screenshot. I had taken a screenshot on a slide, and I had it on a slide on, on my slide. It was a screenshot of a a company that that I just you know I just looked at Cisco routers. I think of what it was, and it showed this company that had all these. The guy, the CISO for the company, was in the audience, oh. and. He was oh, so boy. pissed at me. He came up afterwards, like shaking his finger and like really mad at me. But, 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 you know, Shodan is, is one of those tools. Like you said, I can, I can just pick any device and, or any company and I can go look and, and then I say, Oh, wait a minute. This device has open passwords or I know what vulnerabilities exist with this device. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's, it is a roadmap to, mm-hmm. um, to being evil. 
Yeah, it's it's uh, Chat GPT before Chat yeah. GPT. Oh my gosh! <laughs> Wait till V4 comes out. Oh, my oh boy. Well, you know, Mark, we, we could talk about this for hours that your, your insights are always so amazing. And we love hearing from you as we wrap up here. Uh, any, uh, any closing thoughts, words, words of wisdom for any of our listeners out there that are, you know, they're fighting the good fight every day out there in cyber and dealing with IT and XIOT issues. Yeah. I collect great quotes from people and, um, Dan gear, you know, Dan is kind yeah. of a luminary. Dan said a few years ago that joining the security community is not a career, it's a crusade. <laughs> and, you know, and, and I, I couldn't agree more. You know, again, we talk about how technology changes so fast that, that we need to recognize, I think, when we get in this business, that what we worried about 12 months ago is probably not what we're worried about today. You know, the technology that we were experts on 12 months ago is probably obsolete today or on its way to being obsolete. Um, and, and I think, you know, words of wisdom, pay attention to, to the regulatory environment because we're going to see a change today. And not just in the critical of critical infrastructures, not in just telecom and manufacturing and, and oil and gas and electricity, but everything, every critical infrastructure. And, you know, XIOT is right at the center of that um, because there's just so much of it out there that we don't really know uh about and that we have embedded in our companies and our organizations um that yeah we're we're going to see a lot more regulation and and i don't think it's a bad thing yeah well fantastic advice and predictions and and fantastic discussion from a real crusader so thanks so much (laughs) mark for joining us today thanks john thanks brian absolutely thanks mark thanks for coming on Yeah, thanks so much. And thanks, Brian, to my co-host and our very special guest today, Mark Weatherford. Thanks so much for joining. And remember, everybody, the IoT Security Podcast is brought to you by Phosphorus, the leading provider of proactive, full-scope security for the extended Internet of Things. And until we meet again, I'm John Vecchi. And I'm Brian Contes. We'll see you all next time on Phosphorus Radio. Thanks for listening to this episode of the IoT Security Podcast. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe so you can join us again. While you're at it, leave a review. Find out more about IoT security and the podcast at phosphorus.io. See you next time on the IoT Security Podcast. Podcast.